Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. It is the Bob Bolton Show here on the first day of summer. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, Dave. And it is a beautiful morning. <laughs> we did have a little summer-like weather yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, spring ended up with a record-setting 94 degrees officially at the airport yesterday, which broke the record for that day. Uh, today's record, by the way, is 90. We may fall a little short of that today with highs expected to be in the mid-80s today. Right. Wow, that's interesting. We started May off so cold and so wet <laughs> that uh, snow everywhere still. And all yeah. of a sudden, uh, look at we wound up with a uh, the, one of the hottest days on record. Isn't that something? Yeah, and the, uh, we had a little rain overnight early this morning, too. Uh, not a whole lot, but a few thunder showers and uh, boomers moved on through. Yeah, it's kind of funny. This time of year, it can be variable. What was your official uh, rainfall? Do you have that by chance at Duluth? I do not. I have yesterday's, okay. which was nothing, but this happened early this morning. So I'm Yeah, sure. it sounded to me like there was some pretty good rain. Yeah. So this is really wonderful with warmer conditions, and oftentimes those warmer conditions, of course, uh, more moisture is evaporated. We go to a cool front, we drop some of that down. Uh, moisture is going to be the key. You know, it's interesting, Dave. We have talked a little bit about this summer, and uh, we had such a hot, dry year last year. And, of course, we've started out uh, quite moist here in the northern part of our listing area, northern St. Louis County, up in the Cooch. We've got people up in International Falls who listen, and they're, they're dealing with flooding conditions still. So, But uh, no one's really complaining because drier conditions are worse than uh, than certainly wetter conditions. You know, uh, this is uh, information that I just uh, happened to pick up that uh, they're talking about in the southwest. was very, very hot, very, very dry. Uh, the driest conditions for the last, not 200 years, but 1,200 years, according wow. to some work done at the University of uh, California. So they're very, very dry. And obviously we're getting, I think, some of their moisture at this particular point. And we're not going to complain about that because uh, all life really does depend upon uh, good crops and on uh, plenty of moisture that comes down, hits the field. So we're really uh, very appreciative. Dave, it's going to be interesting going forward. Now, you know, we followed the NOAA, the Climate Prediction Center, and over longer term, they've been pretty accurate. And they said we'd have about average temperatures, uh, average uh, rainfall coming into June, but then watch out for the rest of the summer. And it's as of this morning, they're still holding to their uh, mm. mid to late summer, July, August, September forecasts, which are drier than average and warmer than average. So we're only going to see, you know, whether, as we all know, can be highly variable, unpredictable. I think now more than ever, and it probably has always been the topic of discussion. But with all the discussion about climate change, I think it'll be with us uh, for a long time and some extreme events. So I hope most folks made it through that rain. It was uh, very, very nice in most locations. I know some locations had stormy conditions, and we always worry about hail this time of year. But I think uh, so far we've done pretty well, Dave. Yeah, I think so, too. It was very humid, too. Do plants like the humidity? Does that make any difference? Oh, it makes a huge amount of difference. Uh, Dry, windy conditions can be really devastating on, on young plant material. I had that experience myself where... You don't get them like don't get those roots established well enough, and then we get hot, dry, windy conditions, and that can be difficult. Yeah. So, if we get the humidity up a little bit, 
difficult for humans, but uh, certainly great for those plants. So that's you know that's the nice thing about growing some things when you're hot, miserable, and if you've had uh, moisture, the plants love it. So you're appreciative of that. Uh, when it's raining, you're not, maybe it interrupts a picnic or a family gathering, but your plants are getting a little moisture, so you're happy for that. So I guess uh, being a little diversified in your activities and your interest is uh, important to, uh, to enjoying the season, Dave. Well, the flowering trees have kind of lost their flowers now, I notice. Well, some of the flowering trees, <laughs> boy, are we getting some beautiful bloom other yeah. places. Uh, very, very interesting. The lilacs are just gorgeous. Oh, right yeah. Now. They're jumping out. And um, and maybe we get a chance. We could talk a little bit about the lupins. Uh, someone uh, indicated to me that they're actually traveling up north from the Twin Cities to look at some of our lupins, which uh, these are these, the tall purplish and somewhat pink flowers that are in a lot of our ditches. And particularly the moisture, they're having a very, very good year this year. And they're coming out. They're magnificent. The downside is uh, they're pretty aggressive. And some, (laughs) it's one of these plants that is beautiful, and yet it can be so uh, aggressive that it's considered invasive in many areas. This is the uh, the large leaf lupin, which is not native. It did come out of. uh, It's native to the United States. Came out of the Pacific Northwest. But uh, spreads by seed, and lately it's really been taking over. One of the difficulties of invasive plants is it does force out a lot of the natives, so it's got uh, that issue. It can be very, very aggressive. But the flip side of that, it is beautiful, and actually this is one of the aggressive invasive species that actually provides a source of nectar for our pollinators, which we're, we're so concerned about. So it has it has that interest. It's like a lot of things. Nothing is uh, perfect. And it has some pluses, has some minuses, but uh, I don't think we're going to be involved with controlling it. Hopefully it doesn't get so aggressive that we have to control. I do know that in some national parks now, uh, with climates similar to ours, in Maine as an example, the Park Service is trying to control it because they're so concerned about the uh, invasive nature and eliminating a lot of the native uh, species. It's uh, the seeds themselves are, are they can be toxic to uh, some of the mammals that are out there feeding on it, so it can be a little bit of a problem that way. But I think the major concern in some of the parks is just that it's it's taking over. So in the meantime, we're not at that point here, but it is very aggressive, and people should be aware of that if they're moving it into their landscapes. That you have to make sure that it uh, it remains contained. Is it considered a weed then, or uh, can we oh. get these for your garden, or what? You know, that's an interesting question. How are we really going to define a weed? A weed is <laughs> nothing more than a plant out of place, so it's a beautiful non-native, but a beautiful uh, flower in our ditches until mm-hmm. it becomes so aggressive, so it's a weed out of place, and uh-huh. at that point it becomes a weed. It, you know, it's interesting. It has been cultivated. What we have is the non-cultivated variety uh, that, uh, as I say, it's a non-native. It did come in from the Pacific Northwest, but uh, really hasn't been uh, started. It was brought in as a landscape plant initially for that beautiful spike of flowers, but you know they've they've taken selections. These are seed selections that have some variability in the color. What we see naturally growing on the roadsides here is typically uh, light blue or purplish and some pink mixed in there. But they've found other seedlings that actually have been white and uh, reddish in color, yellow in wow. color. So there are a number of cultivated variety that ha- varieties that have been introduced, and those are uh, those are beautiful. I don't think they're quite as aggressive as these uh, 
native uh, materials that we've got out there, Dave. But right. it's in the trade. It, it, it provides a lot of color. As I say, uh, you probably don't want to overdo. You probably don't want to encourage it. You don't want to <laughs> necessarily spread a lot of seed because we'd like to enjoy a little bit of the beauty in our ditches, but we don't want it to be to the point where it has to be eradicated, Dave. Are these bloom all summer or they have a, a short period? Again, another good question. Um, you know, they're not going to bloom all summer. Yeah. They are, uh, but they're rather log-lived. And again, this will depend upon the uh, kind of conditions we have. Hot and dry, they don't like. If we stay moist, mm. uh, we could have bloom for three or four weeks. So they will bloom mm. into July for us. They can be very, very uh, attractive in terms of appearance. And that's a relatively long bloom for a... Uh, right a late spring flowering plant, Dave. All right. Thanks, Bob. We'll be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show as we wrap up this portion at 925. What's your favorite color? Green. Healthy, vibrant shades of green. The green you get from strong roots growing in good soil, enriched with garden green compost from WLSSD. Natural premium compost worked into the soil or used as mulch. For healthy gardens, trees, lawns, and shrubs, locally produced garden green. Compost you'll dig. Now available at WLSSD's Yard Waste Compost Site and Materials Recovery Center. Find out more at WLSSD.com. Feedman in Superior has the largest selection of grass seed mixtures around. At Dan's Feedman, you'll also find shrubs, trees, plants, and other landscaping materials. Dan's Feedman, 806 Hammond Avenue in Superior. Call Dan's Feedman at 394-6639 or stop in Monday through Friday, 8 till 5 and Saturday, 8 till 4. The supermarket for your pets This is the Bob Olin Show, supported by Dan's Garden Center, located at Dan's Feed Bin in Superior. And by the WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Call now, 218-722-0839. If you have questions for our master gardener, the phone number, again, is 722-0839. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on the first day of summer, which also means uh, this is the longest day. 514 sun up this morning. It'll be setting uh, tonight at 9.07. And starting tomorrow, we start the slow slide down to December 21st, uh, 31st. Yeah, 21st, probably. We don't want to talk about that. Okay, we? yeah. <laughs> Days start getting shorter after today. You know, it's kind of interesting. You're absolutely right. Longest day of the year. Uh, the sun, of course, and uh, this is because of the Earth's tilt, and we're, of course, tilted toward the sun at this mm-hmm. particular time. But if you take a look... Up in the uh, up in the sky and follow that sun, and don't peer into it, of course. But uh, you'll see that it's still in the southern sky, so it's actually over over overhead. I think right at the Tropic of Cancer, I, I believe okay. that's where it would be overhead. But we are so far north, so that's why I always suggest to people take a look at the longest day of the year. That sun isn't directly above us; it's still in the southern uh, part of our, our uh, landscape there. 
so you have to be a little conscious. Uh, if something really needs sun, you want a good southern exposure. You're growing sweet corn or something, you want to make sure that you get a good sunny southern exposure because that sun, even on the longest day of the year, does remain in the southern sky. It's kind of interesting, I believe, Dave, and if you've got this in front of you, I, I think there's a little bit of a lag, and I think even though it's the longest day of the year, we'll have one or more two, one or two more days where we get more sure. sunlight in the evening hours and a little less in the morning, so it's kind of skewed a little bit that way, so we are going to still have some very, very nice uh, evenings to work out in the garden, on the lawn, get that lawn mowed. You're in mowing in Superior now, are you, Dave? Oh, yeah, yeah. We uh, actually got started a little before the end of May, but uh, the dandelions are pretty much gone now, so I don't have to mow nearly as often. Right. It's amazing, like, uh, you know, how interest change in society and priorities change, certainly. And uh, <laughs> there was a time when we weren't going to tolerate any dandelions at all or any broadleaf weeds. We didn't like clover in the lawns. Now, of course, we've got this concept of bee-friendly lawns. We've got no-mow maize uh, where they're trying to leave a few of the broadleaf flowering plants in the lawn and in the landscape for our, for our native pollinators. So it's kind of an interesting mix. And, of course, uh, I've been at a couple of grad parties, and uh, it's very interesting how you'll see neighbors. One neighbor is uh, definitely going bee-friendly, and uh, the other neighbor, the neighbor has got every single broadleaf out and has this perfectly manicured lawn. So it is different, and it's going to be variable, but uh, I'll tell you, acceptance of some of these broadleaf weeds in our lawns is, has sure changed, Dave. Yeah, keeping your broadleaf weeds out when a neighbor lets them go is another story. It's pretty tough to do. They tend to spread around a little bit. Be kind of interesting. You you'll have your task ahead of you because those seeds do do definitely move around. But the landscapes do look beautiful. Uh, I want people. I think you have to take a step back. We talked a little bit about the flowering uh, trees and shrubs, and one of our good sponsors there, Dan. I know they've got a lot of landscape material. There's a lot of interest now in in creating this uh, kind of integrated landscape. And one thing we did last year, I put together a list of materials where uh, you can get both. Uh, flowering ornamental uh, perennials. Some people think about uh, perennial or pollinator gardens of just what we call herbaceous perennials. These are the non-woody materials that flower that bees love and and other pollinating insects love. They feed on the, the nectar, of course, and the pollen, and in the process, uh, they, they pollinate your vegetable and your fruit crops as well. So we think a little bit about those green plants and the flowering, uh, what we call herbaceous ornamentals, but we forget a little bit about the woodies, the trees and the shrubs that are also kicking out uh, a lot of bloom at this particular time. So you've got lupins in the ditch, which are attracting to, attracted to a lot of pollinating insects, and now we've got the lilacs that have come on so strong. And what's so nice about uh, being close to the lake like this is you can kind of follow this progression. So if, if you really enjoyed some of the PGM rhododendrons that flowered early over the hill, uh, a little farther north or a little farther south where it's hot, you can come into the lake and we can set our, we set our schedule back about two weeks or our season back and you can still see some of these the plants that are flowering. So right now the lilacs are, are magnificent. And you know, I, uh, I noticed the combination over the weekend that I think is magnificent that caught my eye and I'll just point it out because, uh, a lot of people are planning our northern lights azalea. This is the University of Minnesota introduction introduced way back in the 70s, 78, I believe. And uh, the azaleas, anyone that's been in Georgia knows that's native. It's not really a real hardy plant. And actually, 
I believe uh, Dr. Pellet worked for about 20 years, and it's very interesting. Everything now, people want things done instantaneously, but a lot of these woody plant materials, and the Honeycrisp apple would be another one. They, they took literally 15, 20, 25 years to develop. Well, the Northern Lights series now, because we've got a number of different colors that have been incorporated into that series, but the original crosses were made uh, back in the 50s and then introduced about 22 days later in the 70s. So we've got this, and I still like some of the uh, the original introductions. The Northern Lights azalea is uh, this deep pink. It's beautiful. It comes a little later in our landscape. The first rhododendrons out, the purple ones, the PJM rhododendrons, they come early, but then they leave early. The uh, Northern Lights comes a little bit later, but they happen to bloom about when the lilacs are blooming. So when you take a look at color combinations, if you want to see something really magnificent, you take a look at... Uh, I've noticed that we've got uh, our common white lilac. Now, most of the French lilacs are light lavender in color, but there's a lot of variability. There have been a lot of new introductions, and there are literally hundreds of lilac introductions because it's it's such a uh, well-adapted species. It's good and hardy in the area. It will tolerate, you know, it's not going to bloom very well in, in full shade at all, but it, it'll tolerate partial sun, the more sun that you can get for the lilac. Uh, certainly the better the bloom is going to be. But uh, for the most part, it will tolerate heavier soils, lighter soils. It will tolerate, you know, we'd all like perfectly well-drained sandy loams, but we don't have that. So it will tolerate uh, heavier clays. It will tolerate uh, certainly lighter soils as well. But it's very hardy, and we've got so many different varieties. But uh, look at these whites, the common white. They're always one of the introductions that's in the landscape everywhere. That beautiful white it comes in combination now and blooms about the same time that this lovely pink from the northern lights is there. They make a magnificent background for shrub material. So I happen to be working with a number of different community projects where people are putting in uh, a lot of real interesting gardening, wellness gardening, good nutrition gardening, uh, healing gardens, a lot of things like this. And I always try to get them to look at that garden, look at the backdrop. What are we going to put in the backdrop? Uh, people want pollinators. They want vegetables. But if we come along and we, we get a backdrop of shrubs and trees that also flower instead of some materials that uh, would be just leafy green, we get this added benefit of the beauty during the spring. And if you time this, you could time the species starting very early with our yellow forsythia and running right up into our Japanese tree lilac, which will be blooming here in July. And uh, you can just time that whole thing. So if you can get some of these flowering uh, taller uh, shrubs or trees uh, in your background, and then you can come forward and then work on your herbaceous perennials, work on your uh, other um, uh, vegetable gardens, small fruit gardens, uh, then you've also got this wonderful source of flowering material for the pollinators. So we really want kind of an integrated approach uh, to the landscape, and we want to think in, I think, in broader terms. We've got good materials. I tell people, go back to the oldies, go back to, uh, I mentioned the common lilac. We've got a lot of exotic lilacs, which are very attractive, but they're fussy. It's no different than our lawn. If you want a good solid lawn, go with common bluegrass. We've got a lot of very elite bluegrasses, which can be magnificent, but boy, they require care. They're more vulnerable to disease. They require more fertility. They require uh, certainly uh, full sun and good drainage, so they're a lot fussier. So 
I generally suggest that people start with some of our real common varieties that have been around for a long time. So going back to this flowering shrubs, uh, take a look at the Northern Lights Azalea. Start with the original and then go on to spicy lights, mandarin lights, white lights, and all the other varieties, which are very nice in terms of color, but in terms of the real uh, long-term survivability and durability, the original is really among the best. That's true of so many of our apple varieties. Your Harrelson would be a great example. You know, that was introduced in the 50s, and yet it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. We've got Honeycrisp. We've got so many new varieties that have come along, but in terms of durability, uh, that performs you for you year in and year out on a site where I think you probably have heavier soils. Would that be a fair assessment, Clay? Yeah, we're in the clay. Yep. Now, there's nothing wrong with clay for uh, woody materials, trees and shrubs. It just takes them longer to get established, but clays tend to hold nutrients, they tend to hold water, and once you get them established, uh, do you have any idea how old your Harrelson is, Dave? Mm. Well, it's got to be about 40 years old, I would yeah, guess. Yeah, even 40 and still very, very productive. Mm-hmm. So once they're established, so I, I hear this comment often, I'm, I'm, unfortunately I've got heavy clays, I can't grow anything. <laughs> no, you can grow a lot of things. Uh, you just, uh, vegetables and annuals may be a little bit of a challenge because of the heavy nature of the soil, but for certainly your woody materials, your trees and shrubs, uh, clays can be very good once they get established. First right. couple of years takes a while, and then they last a long time. Let's head to the phones, Bob. We've got somebody who's been uh, patiently standing by. Hi, who's this? Hi, it's Gary from Kenwood. Hi. Good morning. Morning, Bob. Hope we didn't bore you with all that discussion there. <laughs> I've got a rhubarb question for you. Great. When I moved in the house here in Kenwood in 1972, I had a mature rhubarb plant growing, which for the years has produced tons of rhubarb for us. Great. Now, in the last couple, three years, the uh, stalks have been quite spindly. Before, they were nice, heavy-duty, you know, uh, good-sized stalks. What, what's going on? Okay, the first thing I'm going to ask, have we, uh, do we have more shade than we've had in the past? Have the trees and shrubs grown up around there? No, it's got probably 90, 90, 95% sun. So that has not changed? Nope. Okay. Then uh, do you do anything with the fertility in the spring of the year? I mean, No, I haven't. I just, uh, you know, I've cleaned it up and, you know, keep it, you know, deleted and all that kind of stuff, but I've never done any fertilizing. Okay. I would suggest, because our, our soils are deficient in nitrogen, this is a big... Uh, leafy plant that over time will probably pull and deplete a lot of the available nutrients. So I would be, and to keep it real simple, you could use a lawn fertilizer. This would be a granular synthetic without any of the herbicides, so nothing that says plus, you know, fertilizer plus two or weed and feed or anything like that. Stay away from any of that, but just a straight uh, lawn fertilizer, which will have a pretty significant component of both nitrogen and, in your situation in, in Kenwood, will have plenty of the middle number that isn't included in a, in a lawn fertilizer in Minnesota, now in Wisconsin. So you're just getting nitrogen and you're getting potassium. And your soils in Kenwood don't need phosphorus, the middle number. They need just nitrogen and potassium. So uh, the ideal time would be, uh, you know, in the early spring when they're just beginning to emerge. So you could keep that in mind. Uh, if we have water or if you water it in, if we'd gotten in before this last rain, it would have been just fine. 
but I'd kind of like to get that done before we come into July because uh, these plants coming into July, we're going to stop harvesting. And that's the other question. You probably don't over-harvest since you've had good harvest for a number of years. Is that a fair assessment? When do you stop picking the rhubarb? Uh, usually early July. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So you've done everything right. I think we're probably... Uh, two things are probably happening. Uh, we've got good sun yet. We've got good drainage. Uh, we're probably low on nutrition for those plants because they do pull a lot out of the soil, large leafy plants. So some fertilizer is going to help. That might be the starting point. The other thing I would do, oftentimes these roots get old and they get very, very woody. So uh, very early next spring, I wouldn't do anything now because you want the plant harvested and enjoy it now. But uh, a little fertility right now in the in the in June before we get into July, then I let the plants just go because uh, coming into the latter part of the year when the days get shorter, they start uh, storing carbohydrates, sugars down in the roots to get through the winter and, and to pop buds next spring. But next spring, I would take a part of the patch at least. And one thing I'd do this year, I'd clean all the weeds and all the grass out of a new location, and I would dig up some of the roots, and I would split them down because they're going to be old, they're going to be woody, and then find the in the very early spring, find where you've got at least a couple of buds, set those down in the ground in your new location, uh, just maybe a two, three finger between the bud and the soil surface, about two, three fingers deep, just get it down in the ground, and oftentimes uh, that will renovate or rejuvenate that ready material, and with a little, not the first year with fertility, but subsequent years, a little very early spring fertility. And I think you'll find that combination is going to bring those back where they really become productive again for you. Okay, well, thanks very much for the advice, Bob. We'll give it a try. Give it a try, and it's a great crop, and I, it's one of my favorites. I've made one pie. I don't have a lot of time for making <laughs> pies, but rhubarb uh, pies are wonderful. Buy one from the Rhubarb Fest, which is coming up. Help me, Dave. Is it this Saturday? Weekend? Yep, this Saturday. Yep, that's what I thought at uh, mm-hmm. at the um, Holy Rosary campus there, mm-hmm. and we'll have our master gardeners out there as well answering questions. And it's a great, great, wonderful uh, activity. Uh, all of, all the benefits uh, certainly go to the Chum, which is a great organization as well. So uh, great to take advantage and to buy one of their rhubarb pies. Those folks do a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful job yeah. for sure. Hey, thanks much for the call, too. Appreciate and it. Thank you for that call, yeah. Rhubarb is a great favorite. You know, farther south, it's interesting. They can't grow rhubarb. It's really a northern wow. hemisphere crop. And the farther north you get up into Canada, and I know we've got a lot of Alaska, northern Minnesota connections. We've got a lot of our big Minnesota community up in Alaska. It's hard to believe if you've ever had the opportunity to visit uh, the size of the rhubarb there. There, They do truly consider it just a weed. It really grows, but it grows to six, eight feet in height. Wow. Six, five, six feet in height, I should say. And it's uh, it's absolutely huge up there. So One stalk will last you all summer long. Yeah, all right. But we do a great job here. But they do kind of burn out and wear out, and uh, they need to be uh, that patch needs to be renovated. We need to move those roots around from time to time. All right, we'll get out another call, Bob. We'll take that as we uh, take a break first and be right back with more of the Bob Olin Show. And we're back with the Bob Olin Show. We do have another caller, Bob. Hi, who's this on the phone? Uh, John from Boavix. Hey, Bob. Yes. I just got my potato uh, buds coming up, and uh, I got our... Uh, potato bugs already what's a good solution oh it's one of our toughest issues to be completely honest with you uh and you've got a large number if, if you had a smaller number just pick them like crazy um if you don't um there are some 
labeled materials out there. Some pesticides can be used. There's uh, The most common one is one called 7. It's been around for a long time. The problem is there's quite a bit of resistance on the Colorado potato beetle. So for a homeowner, I don't have real good solutions there. I will say this. Anything you can do, because that insect, of course, overwinters in the soil, Anything you do to move the patch. Now, unfortunately, they move and they crawl, and I've seen them as well, and they can be hard on on um, eggplant and uh, on any number of what we call solanaceae in that, uh, in that family, the nightshade family, which potatoes are in. So I probably, if you're not opposed to doing this, if you can't pick them off uh, or hosing them down won't work, they crawl right up back up again. So you've got to pick them and eliminate them. But you might try um, you might try uh, some seven or other beetle controls. There are some neem controls that you might try. But to be honest with you, a lot of these materials are not particularly effective. I'd be moving the patch. Uh, it sounds a little bit crazy, but uh, I've done this where you take the snow blower out there if you get early snow, and you keep that potato patch open. So while you're doing the drive, you hit the potato patch. I clear snow off, so I get very, very cold penetration. So when it gets 20 below and no snow, that will kill the larvae that are down in the soil. Uh, people are always looking for non-chemical alternatives, and uh, if that works and you're willing to do that, uh, there might be another option for you. But it's, it is a very challenging insect to control, for sure. Okay, thanks a lot, Bob. I you're, appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> I wish I had the, the quick and easy solutions. Some of these are just aren't real quick and easy solutions. Oh, okay, th- thank yeah, you. Maybe yeah. hire some beetle pickers. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> I can remember uh, as a kid on the farm, we did pick them, and I don't know, ah. we got paid a nickel for a quart or some crazy thing. And if I could, I'll tell you, even on what I've got, if I could find someone that would pick me a nickel for a nickel, pick me a quart of those babies, I'd have mired all day. But <laughs> that is yeah. going to happen for most most folks. But if you have a few plants, it certainly is a viable option. But uh, even some of the, as I mentioned, the over-counter sprays, there's resistance there, and they're, they're not particularly effective. I take it these are pretty common now, a problem in, in oh, this area? Or? They sure can be. Oh. They're a problem uh, virtually everywhere you grow potatoes wow. where there's heavy snow cover. Now, it's real interesting. And in some of the, some parts of the Rocky Mountains where they've got pretty good potato production, uh, they don't have an issue. They don't have an issue with the Colorado potato beetle in Colorado, if you can imagine that. <laughs> well, and, how appropriately named then, I guess. Well, it's inappropriately really, named. The reason yeah. they don't have the problem is they, the where they grow them is an irrigated uh, plateaus up high in the mountains where yeah. they have this cold penetration. And uh, that's where I first got on to let's get rid of the snow, let's get that 20 degrees down in the ground so we kill them. But uh, the Colorado potato beetle gets its name from the fact that uh, it has kind of a reddish wing cover, just like the state of Colorado comes oh. from. Uh, Colorado is red for that red rock that they have out there. So the beetle isn't uh, named after the state. It's named for the color of the wing covers that are out there. So that's why they call it a Colorado potato beetle. The state of Colorado doesn't have Colorado potato beetles. <laughs> That are a problem, which I found to be very interesting. Yeah. All right, we got another call too. Hi, who's this? Hi, Don here from Iron River, Wisconsin. All right. Hello. Good morning. Say, I have not had um, blossom and roots because I've been taking my eggshells, grinding them up, and put them in the roots when I plant my tomatoes. What's uh, your thinking about your philosophy on that? 
Well, you're breaking up just a little bit, but I heard I heard the eggshells, and you're grinding them up, you're pulverizing them, and then you're putting them in solution when you plant your tomatoes. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, a couple of thoughts. You know, blossom end rot is caused by calcium deficiency. You're absolutely right. There's calcium in eggshells. Uh, the fact you're pulverizing and you're trying to get typically eggshells don't go into solution. Uh, everything a plant picks up has to be in solution because it has to it has to get through the roots and through a membrane there. So probably pulverizing them, you're going to get some more of the calcium in solution. But blossom end rot is not if you're out and you're are you in a raised bed or a pot or are you down in the ground? I'm in pots. Uh... You're in pots. Okay, I could see where that would help. We oftentimes have calcium deficiency in a potting soil mix. So I think that might be helping some for you, without a doubt. Um, We need calcium, but for folks to get blossom and rot down in a garden soil, we typically have a lot of calcium in the garden soil. We're getting a little bit more deficient in sulfur now, which we never had a problem with before. but, But calcium is there in abundance, and if people still get... If they have plenty of calcium in the soil and they're still getting blossom and rots, then it's a question of translocation within the plant interrupted water supply. In other words, if uh, it gets hot and dry, then we don't translocate or move that soluble calcium all the way out to the far or the blossom end. So I would say this. I think that's fine. Uh, You're getting some calcium. I'm a little bit skeptical if we're getting enough. You might try some gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. That's going to give you a soluble form of calcium. But the real critical thing, particularly in the containers, is uniform watering. So you want to make sure they get watered once, perhaps twice a day, so that we get this translocation of the calcium that's in the soil all the way out to the far end, or what we call the distal end of the, of the fruit or the flower. Does that make some sense to you? Yes, gypsum, and what did you mean by putting the eggshells in solution? Yeah, you got to get it. You got to get them ground up and in solution. Uh, there are different forms of calcium, and what we need is a good soluble form of calcium. So, you know, I think it, it's whatever works for you. I, I think that's great. I would actually have a little more confidence in fertilizing with a calcium nitrate, which I know is going to go into solution, or gypsum which is calcium sulfate, which I know will go in solution for you. So maybe a little gypsum as well, but uh, I'm not going to argue with anyone that's successful. Just the eggshells, I don't think it's going to get that calcium in solution. Grinding them up, pulverizing them, getting them into a warm water solution, that certainly could help for you. Okay? So gypsum and calcium sulfate. Uh, Gypsum is calcium sulfate. But the other fertilizer you can use is calcium nitrate, which you can buy from a good uh, uh, feed mill or a good uh, lawn and garden shop. But uh, for fertility, calcium nitrate, or perhaps a little easier to get gypsum, which is calcium sulfate, gives you both some soluble calcium as well as some soluble um, uh, sulfur. This is particularly important in potting soils, potting soil mixes, raised beds, we don't have too much of a problem in a conventional garden soil because the calcium and the sulfur are there. If we have blossom end rot in a conventional garden soil, it's because of this irregular watering and we haven't been able to move it through the system to the far end of the fruit. Kind of a long Thank explanation, you. but that's what's going on. Okay? 
Okay, I'll write that down. Thank you. Hey, Great. thanks for the You're call. Appreciate welcome. it. And also for peppers. It's not just we saw a lot of blossom in around on peppers. We did some research last year on, on growing some of the edible peppers. And we found there, because I'm conscious of making calcium available in the soil, but it was the irregular moisture and the fact that containers in particular dried down very quickly. So we saw a lot of blossom and rot and actually tissue decay due to calcium deficiency because of irregular watering. So nice, consistent watering, plenty of calcium available. That will take care of the blossom and rot on both peppers and tomatoes. Very good. Thank you, Bob. 9.54. We'll be back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. Well, Bob, this hour certainly has uh, flown by uh, as we're ready to wrap things up already this morning. Uh, where are you going to be uh, this weekend? Are you going to make the uh, the uh, festival, the rhubarb festival? Uh, you know, I would love to, and I've been there <laughs> in the past, but I, uh, I'm pretty busy yeah. on the farm on the weekend, so I probably will miss that one. But I will say this, um, interesting uh, questions today on the rhubarb mm-hmm. question, moving around, you know, People will ask you, there are hundreds of varieties of rhubarb out there. Look for some Canada Red, going back to the old goodies. People like the red stems, Canada Red. And this last call on uh, on eggshells, I, I, he's absolutely right about the calcium deficiency. Uh, I think breaking it and making that calcium soluble from the eggshells, he talked about crushing them. You could maybe, I think, use a little vinegar as well to help break that down and make that just a little bit more soluble, or as, as I suggested, uh, just some gypsum or some calcium nitrate. But uh, we're getting some rather sophisticated uh, callers right now, and I appreciate uh, they took us along to some interesting discussion, Dave. Absolutely. Well, Bob, have a good rest of the week, and we'll catch you back here on uh, next Tuesday. Absolutely. Enjoy the longest evening of the year coming up here pretty soon, day or two from now, okay? All right. Thank you, Bob. 9.57 now at KDAO. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feed Bent in Superior. And by WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig.